Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Censored, the podcast for filthy-minded readers. My name is Aoife Vertnach, and I foolishly promised that I'd read any book on the blacklist, regardless of genre or dodgy subject matter. Well, this episode shows what happens when you make foolish promises. The book I read this time rejoices in the title The Awful Disclosures of Maria Monk as exhibited in a narrative of her sufferings during a residence of five years as a novice and two years as a black nun in the Hotel Dieu Nunnery at Montreal. I love long narrative titles as much as the next historian, but nothing can redeem this book for me. It's a hot mess that only serious history nerds should be reading. It's certainly the oddest thing I've found in the band list so far, because it's not a notorious, famously filthy historic text like, say, the writings of the Marquis de Sade. De Sade's 120 days of Sodom were still considered shocking in the 20th century. But the awful disclosures of Maria Monk is not internationally famous for transgressive content. So my big question is, why was this nasty, but apparently minor, text banned in 1964, 126 years after it was first published? To help me answer that, I found a guest, Victoria Pearson, a PhD student from the UCC History Department, who's working on the 18th century Irish Catholic Church, specifically nuns. She has spent a lot more time than me researching the structures of religious life and the mentality of the Irish Catholic Church, and I love a good expert. Now, I'm sorry to disappoint, but there is no food or drink in this book at all because the author spends too long talking about crazy Catholics and their evil ways. It's an odd omission because food plays a central role in the religious calendar. In a convent, important saints' days would be marked with special food, and the day when new sisters entered religious life would also be a time of feasting. This book is far too concerned with painting an unremittingly grim picture of convent life to include any details of food or drink. Funnily enough, The authors even missed the opportunity to milk the Lenten fast for all it was worth. Imagine the potential for horror in starving people for 40 days and 40 nights. For my own sake, I'm going to eat a large, buttery, crumbly slice of cake after this, because I'll need a duvet for the soul. This is not great literature, and it's not great smut. It's a disturbing book written by a mysterious author known as Anonymous. 
This book dragged me kicking and screaming on a journey into the weird and fantastic world of 19th century anti-Catholic propaganda. The Awful Disclosures of Maria Monk was originally published in America in 1836, but a reprint edition from London's Walton Press was banned by the Irish censor in 1964. This book claims to be an autobiographical account of a woman who had joined a Roman Catholic convent in Montreal and endured serious sexual abuse before fleeing to America. To give you fair warning, I'll be outlining the allegations in some detail, and it's not pleasant. Although it was later revealed that a number of men wrote much of it, there are parts that read like a survivor's account of sexual abuse. The peculiar blend of fact and fiction is what makes it such an unsettling read for me. As for bannable content, I suspect the first paragraph about escaping from, quote, the snares of the Roman priests in Canada, unquote, would have offended the censor's religious beliefs. But I'm not sure if this insult to Catholicism was sufficient to merit the terms indecent or obscene under the Censorship of Publications Act. So I kept on reading like a censor until genuinely bannable content appeared on page 12. And I'm going to read this out and it's awful. There was a girl 13 years old whom I knew in the school who resided in the neighbourhood of my mother and with whom I had been familiar. She told me one day at school of the conduct of a priest with her at confession, at which I was astonished. It was of so criminal and shameful a nature I could hardly believe it, and yet I had so much confidence that she spoke the truth that I could not discredit it. She was partly persuaded by the priest to believe he could not sin because he was a priest, and that anything he did to her would sanctify her, and yet she seemed somehow doubtful how she should act. She told me she had informed her mother of it, who expressed no anger or disapprobation, but only enjoined it upon her not to speak of it, and remarked to her as priests were not like men, but holy, and sent to instruct and save us, whatever they did was right. Ugh, God, it's just creepy and nauseating, and I hate it. And I'm sorry I had to read it out, but that's what I said I'd do. As a description of the abuse of power that is possible and has occurred in the confessional, this is depressingly familiar. Abusers can and have used the confessional to coerce, threaten and exploit children and adults. And the refusal of the child's parent to either believe her or to stop it is also typical. However, this is not a clarion call for justice for survivors, because this allegation alone would have been sufficient to write a whole pamphlet on. The very fact that it's just the opening salvo shows this book is written for propaganda purposes. And locating the first sex crime in a confessional is also very significant. Since Catholic confession was problematic for many Protestant churches in the early 19th century, such serious transgressions as sexual assault in the confessional would not surprise contemporary readers of this text. Protestants who already hated Catholics for their religious errors would be further encouraged to fear them for their criminal tendencies. Just two pages later, the anonymous author reveals that Catholics worship the communion wafer as God. This is a pretty sensational way to address the insanely complicated question of Eucharist and Christian churches and clearly marks the text out as propaganda. Some of this stuff is unintentionally funny. At one point, 
The text breathlessly tells us that Catholics don't pray for Protestants because prayers for souls guilty of unconfessed sins sink them further in hell. I've no idea what this is supposed to mean. Many Protestants would have been offended to be prayed for because they have strong opinions on intercessionary prayer. They are also pretty sure they're perfectly right and don't need anyone else's prayers, thank you very much. But somehow this fervently anti-Catholic text is upset that Catholics don't pray for Protestants. I mean, it's completely batshit crazy. Religious prejudice drives this text, not rationality, obviously, but the sexual horror story is like the icing on the bigotry cake. And those sexual sins really are horrible. To add to the child abuse we've already discussed, the newly professed Maria Monk is told that her religious vows include sexual submission to any and all priests. And this is a piece from page 36, and it's the end of Maria Monk's first day as a fully professed nun. Nothing important occurred till late in the afternoon, when, as I was sitting in the community room, Father Dufresne called me out, saying he wished to speak with me. I feared what was his intention, but I dared not disobey. In a private apartment he treated me in a brutal manner, and from two other priests I afterwards received similar usage that evening. Father Dufresne afterwards appeared again, and I was compelled to remain in company with him until morning. My notes on the sexual sections of this book are mostly ew, and this is no exception. It's also a classic horror story, with brutality and fear saturating the sentence. But not content with rape and violating celibacy, the authors start to pile on the horror. Nuns inevitably became pregnant after these assaults and the resulting babies were baptised, then strangled and buried in a hole in the cellar. Yes, a hole in the cellar where the bodies were dissolved with lime and sulfuric acid. Mental. Weirdly, the mother superior kept a register to record the names of nuns and the babies born to them. Because keeping a paper trail of criminality and broken vows is always a priority. We all know nuns love paperwork more than morality. But alongside infanticide, torture, kidnapping and assault, there is, of course, a murder. And nothing could be more grotesque than the way this murder was described. A nun who had refused to kill babies was murdered in the bizarrest fashion. She was gagged, tied to a bed and then suffocated by another bed being placed on top of her. I'm going to read this bit out because it's quite crazy. On the bed, the prisoner was laid with her face upward and then bound with cords so that she could not move. In an instant, another bed was thrown upon her. One of the priests, named Bonin, sprung like a fury first upon it with all his force. He was speedily followed by the nuns until there were as many upon the bed as could find room and all did what they could, not only to smother but to bruise her. Some stood up and jumped upon the poor girl with their feet, some with their knees, and others in different ways seemed to seek how they might best beat the breath out of her body and mangle it, without coming in direct contact with it, or seeing the effects of their violence. During this time, my feelings were almost too strong to be endured. I felt stupefied, and scarcely was conscious of what I did. Still, fear for myself induced me to some exertion, and I attempted to talk to those who stood next, 
partly that I might have an excuse for turning away from the dreadful scene. I wonder does the very fact that this is completely ridiculous make it just a little bit credible? It's obviously written for people who want to believe the worst of the Catholic Church. And this gothic horror text was extremely popular in the US, where it was a bestseller for decades. It was also wildly controversial, as people tried to prove its veracity. One bloke visited the convents in Montreal to compare the architecture described in the book to actual buildings. But as I read it, I wondered how Catholics themselves would have reacted to it. So I asked Victoria to tell me if it was a good fake or a transparent piece of propaganda from a Catholic perspective. I think even just an initial reading of that, of the book, does throw up an awful lot of kind of red flag as to why this, um, the person who was writing it only had a very, very rudimentary understanding of not just how nuns operate or how the Catholic clergy operate, but just how a Catholic person themselves at that time would have felt about their religion and how they would have practiced their religion. I think first off, there was a lot of confusion around the order and the names of the orders and how they were organised in Montreal. Any Catholic at the time would have been very much aware of what nuns were in what order, what their habits meant and what they represented and what each order was associated with. It wouldn't have been, you know, necessarily people would have been reading articles in newspapers or reading books about, you know, the ethos and the philosophy of these sisters. It would have been obvious from their work what they were synonymous with. So even, like, the average Catholic at the time would have known that, like, these sisters were one thing and that sisters were the other. But the person who is writing that book is very confused in what each of the congregations are doing. And refers to them only by their nicknames, the Grey Sisters, the Black Nuns, and is very kind of vague in the actual names of the congregations and the orders. Also, her description of her training as a nun is so vague, it couldn't have been made by anybody, I think, who would have actually taken, even if you didn't stay the whole length of time to be professed. There is so little detail and it is so vague. And then I think the most serious and damning issue of why it's false is that she doesn't mention the fact that you take solemn vows and then there's quite a period of about two years before you take your perpetual vows. So when you take your perpetual vows, there are vows for the rest of your life. And in the book, she seems to go kind of from naught to 60. She goes straight from entering the convent over, and then a kind of a matter of years is lost over. And there's kind of a rough, time span given of oh I was there for four to five years which is somebody sort of guessing at how long it takes to become a nun and then she goes through this sort of really strange ceremony and then there are her perpetual vows where she doesn't actually mention the vows that she takes which will be the most important element of it just in those initial few chapters at the start like that there's very little understanding of the devotional practice and the theology that would be going on behind why the nuns were living a certain way it, it, so it has that outsider feel, somebody peering through the window and seeing glimpses of a religious life with no understanding of what the religious life entails. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The anonymous author was later revealed to be an outsider. In fact, the book was written by a number of men, two Presbyterian ministers, a journalist, and a Canadian anti-Catholic preacher called Reverend William Hoyt. None of these men had been to Catholic school or inside a nunnery, so they drew on their imagination and prejudices to write this book. I think that explains the prurience of the text, where indulging their grubby thoughts led to the full ripening of their grotesque obsessions. Maria Monk, the supposed memoir writer, was apparently in a sexual relationship with Hoyt, and he was the father of her illegitimate child. The commercial success of Monk's recollections spawned a rash of subsequent texts, including a sequel, an affidavit from her mother, and an autobiography from her daughter. The only thing for sure we know about Monk is that she was never a nun. To be honest, I don't know if other versions of her story, that she was prostituted as a child and lived in a Magdalene asylum, were true. But there is a part in the book, pages 182 to 90, where she writes of being in a lodging house in Montreal that feels like the real experience of a person with no control over her own life, who is at the mercy of powerful figures outside herself. The best lies are based in truth, after all. Monk ended up dying in prison in 1848, destitute and forgotten. Unfortunately, we know a lot more about Reverend Hoyt and the lads than this woman whose story they used to further their political agenda. The strange thing about this book is that it might be considered one of those famous books you've never heard of. It's no longer renowned for its titillating content, but it was once widely read in America. It sold 300,000 copies before the American Civil War broke out in 1861. I suppose it's possible that censors in 1960s Ireland knew all about the historical significance of Monk's book, but I'm not sure. I asked Victoria to tell me why Irish Catholics were offended by this type of propaganda, even 126 years after it was first published. I think what it would offend them most about it is that it would it would have been so easily recognisable as a fake that it would have been thought of as propaganda. The church has heard these accusations 
for hundreds of years, these accusations have been levelled at the church. Would these um, accusations of priests and nuns being involved in illicit activity has been the kind of standard bearer of insult and undermining and anti-clericalism that's been levelled at the church for generations. This isn't the first time, 1964 isn't the first time they've heard it. They've heard this for generation after generation after generation. And even though, you know, Ireland in the in the 20th century, and particularly after the formation of the state, we see this as a great bastion, a great Catholic society, a great bastion of Catholicism. There is a long history of anti-clericalism in Ireland, you know, going back. I mean, I suppose the penal laws are the most potent example of it. But there has been a long history of anti-clericalism. And that goes right through the penal laws, you know, into the Act of Union, right through the famine. A lot of the accusations levelled against the church about their lack of help during the famine and their lack of support during the famine, you know, right into the stance that the church took on the Land League and the, and the Home Rule Act. And particularly republicanism, republicanism, and we have this idea of Irishness that we have to be Catholic and we have to be Republican, but republicanism, Catholicism have long crossed swords and are sort of two ends of a spectrum where there would have been a lot, particularly the church's stance during maybe the War of Independence and the Civil War, there would have been a lot of anti-clericalism and maybe not anti-Catholicism, but anti-clericalism, anti the, the way the church is organised and the viewpoints of the church and how the church expresses itself held with the members of the Republican community as well. So all of that sort of bubbling under the veneer of this great Catholic society in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. The immediate historic context of Ireland as a Catholic nation, almost a Catholic state, meant that this trashy piece of propaganda could not be tolerated that the alleged father of Monk's baby was a priest called Patrick Phelan can't have helped either. An Irishman was chief among the criminal fornicators. I also suspect the saucy cover may have played a role. The 1971 edition from Walton Press advertised it as, quote, one of the most powerful accounts of depravity ever written, unquote. The cover showed a kneeling naked woman being flogged by a man wearing what could be interpreted as clerical robes. I'm pretty sure this alone qualified as pornography for the Irish Censorship Board. I'd just like to reiterate that this book is nasty. Cobbled together by more than one person, it's the product of fevered imaginations, nightmarish visions of systematic abuse and political hate. We know that the Catholic Church has long concealed abuse and protected perpetrators, but this book is not a whistleblowing effort to right wrongs. Nuns themselves have always been uniquely vulnerable in the structural power systems of the Catholic Church. Orders have been suppressed by bishops and civil power over allegations of sexual misconduct. Sexual impropriety is the most common slur made against religious orders by their enemies within and without the Catholic Church. As Victoria explains here, in relation to Nano Nagel in Cork City in the 18th century. Nano Nagel, when she first, she first started her schools in the 1750s in Cork, and by the 1770s, there is a persistent rumour and a persistent insult and accusation against her that she's actually a madam. That the reason she's going out onto the streets, rounding up children, these poor children that, that live in the laneways of Cork City, 
is because she's running a brothel. The veneer is that she's teaching a school, but she's not. She's Because why would you teach the poor to read and write? She's actually profiting from them and running a brothel. And those accusations are levelled against her. And it gets to the point where she there's accusations levelled against her from court cooperation. She's brought before the corporation to kind of explain what she's doing. It's a very kind of easy accusation to make against nuns and priests, particularly as a large part of their vocation rests on celibacy. So if you want to undermine their authority, one of the things that you can kind of really poke a hole in is their celibacy, because again, it's something that they don't talk about. It might surprise people who believe that nuns have great power to learn that historically, nuns are rarely powerful. They teach and minister to the poor, not just because that is their philosophy, but because the church won't really let them do anything else. Nuns have also long been subject to sexual predators from the priesthood. In 1994, Sister Maria O'Donoghue, a medical missionary of Mary from Clare, wrote a damning report of sisters being abused by priests and brothers throughout the world. Monk's narrative of abuse of religious women was not entirely ridiculous, even if the gothic horror parts are just wild. Of course, when I read the dead babies in a whole bit, my mind went irresistibly to the latest, greatest scandal to hit the Catholic Church in Ireland. The burial of infants who died in institutions run by Catholic nuns has made headlines all over the world. And the Chewham baby scandal has provoked much of the same vitriol that Monk's narrative once did. Some of the frenzied anti-nun material on social media surpasses what Hoyt ever implied. I saw a particularly gruesome image showing a fearsome, monstrous nun figure devouring babies whole. Maybe the Irish censors were right to believe that old libels don't lose their potency just because they're old-fashioned and completely unbelievable. God, these banned books contain content I never expected to find. You go looking for smut and uncover a festering stew of misogyny, hate and propaganda that continues to manifest itself in contemporary society. It's been a wild ride, but I wouldn't recommend you read this book unless you have a stockpile of brain bleach to hand. But in spite of reading a grim book, I insist on playing censorship bingo, and this nasty little book will not stop me from trivialising complex texts. So get out your bingo sheets and let's begin. Now, I can't tick off genitalia or breasts or oral sex. For a book so concerned with sex, there are no explicit references to body parts or sex acts. Of course, the way the text is written means plenty of dirty-minded readers thought about these things. The beauty of implied smut is that it can be whatever you imagine it to be. The first square to mark off is extramarital pregnancy, but it's of course doubly wrong because pregnancy in celibate, professed religious, is truly awful. The next square is blasphemy. I suspect the Irish censors thought this slander against the Roman Catholic Church was blasphemous. The book was not speaking against God, but it was profaning the reputation of holy men and women. Every immoral act in this book was doubly offensive because it was perpetrated by ordained religious. Now, there's no feminism, obviously, no swearing, no menstruation, divorce or infidelity because nobody's married. There is graphic violence, 
the murder of Sister Francis, the one that I read out earlier, although the urge to snort in disbelief because of suffocation by mattress slightly undermines the horror effect. There's a controversial one here, orgies. Nothing is directly stated, but that is the power of this narrative. It allows readers to fill in the depravity themselves. And I think since priests are raping nuns, anything is possible in the fevered imaginations of these readers. The next square is sexual assault. The pervasive nature of sexual assault and degradation is what makes this book so gross to read. There are innumerable examples of sexual assault. And finally, crime. Obviously, murder and infanticide are criminal, as is rape and assault. So there's lots of crime in this book. So the awful disclosures of Maria Monk scores 5 out of 25 in censorship bingo. Surprisingly low for a book advertised as one of the most powerful accounts of depravity ever written. I think the sins in this book are not primarily sexual, but theological. Catholicism is so fundamentally illegitimate, according to these authors, that it gives birth to sexual crime and chaos. And once again, don't read this book, I beg you. There are lots of editions online on archive.org, but don't waste your time. I've read it for you, I've read out the rude bits, don't let my sacrifice be in vain. Instead, go online and read the next episode's book, Pleasure Ground by Ori Hitt. It's an example of American pulp fiction, so I'm hoping for lust and sweat and boobs galore. Hopefully it was banned for all the good reasons, shagging and more shagging, rather than culturally important but angsty ones. I'm looking for light-hearted fun, and this should be the place to find it. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm off to eat cake and never ever think of the disclosures of Maria Monk ever again. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 